Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Fifteen days ago in the early morning, the first air raid sirens were activated in southern and central Israel in response to Hamas missiles. A few minutes later, the Supernova Music Festival was attacked by those same militants. At that event, of the three to 5,000 people present, at least 260 were killed and many others abducted, just in that one festival. Israel would announce that the Hamas militants had entered southern Israel, and then sirens were activated in Jerusalem following a rocket barrage that landed in the forested hills on the city's western edge. Israel declared a state of alert for war, activating its reservists in response to continued rocket attacks. And so began an unpredictable set of events that continue to this day. And so as Christians and as followers of Jesus Christ, we are on pretty high alert whenever Israel is mentioned on the national stage. And when they were attacked, it gave birth to a few scenarios, probably in all of our hearts and our minds. I would say that the recent events have birthed a few completely understandable responses. Primarily, what I have seen, what I have observed, what I have heard from a few of you, it's birthed these three responses in part or in whole, anxiety, fear, and anger. Anxiety is this feeling of worry, it's nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain income. I don't know why I felt the need to describe anxiety, because I think we all know what it means, right? Even if you couldn't articulate the words, you know what it feels like in your heart. Fear is this unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that something or someone is dangerous, and likely to cause pain or a threat. And so you get fearful. Anger is this feeling of annoyance or displeasure or hostility. Now, there are times in life where we will go to places to live that we were only intended to visit. And I'm thinking metaphorically, of course, that our heart and our emotions will go to places to live when we were only intended to visit those places. So anxiety and fear and anger are perfectly normal and understandable responses to what we've seen on the international stage. But when we choose to live there in anxiety, fear, or anger, we're we're going to put ourselves at severe consequences to our faith. Now, you might say, well, I don't live in anxiety, fear, or anger. Oh, don't you? What would living in anxiety look like in our lives? Well, let me read some symptoms and you self-diagnose yourself. Persistent, excessive, irrational worry. Living in anxiety means you avoid certain people or certain places for fear of the outcome, and that leads to further isolation. Living in anxiety looks like procrastination or difficulty completing tasks, irritability and easily frustrating, straining relationships. 
Well, what would it look like to live in fear? Well, fear, living in fear means you have the anxiety and stress. You're easily startled with new information. You have trouble resting, trouble relaxing. You begin to harbor mistrust and jealousy, jeopardizing your relationships. Living with anger looks like emotional distress, leading to constant irritability and mistrust. It means living with relational conflict. It means having impaired decision-making or negative thought patterns. We didn't even touch any of the physical symptoms of living in anxiety, fear, or anger. And so what I've noticed is as we have birthed these, uh, these responses of anxiety, fear, and, uh, and anger, it's also birthed a lot of questions based on what's happening in Israel. Questions like this, is this it? Is the beginning of the end happening now? Are, prof- are prophecies being fulfilled in real time? Some of you have the, the, the need to answer these out loud. I'd, I'd ask you just to let your heart rest with these questions. How do I make sense of this? Why are people supporting Israel? Why are people supporting Palestine? What is our government going to do in response? What should our government do in response? What should I do? What should we do? Shouldn't we do something? Does this mean, is this something or nothing? I'm not going to come close to answering most of those questions this morning for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think when we try to operate with certainty and assuredness in areas that God has clearly and um, that he has clearly left vague, we put ourselves in a really awkward position. So I don't want to talk with certainty about things the Scripture is really unclear about. I will say this. Uh, the other reason why we're not going to answer all of those questions is uh, the, answering those questions can lead to further anxiety, fear, or anger. As Christians, there has to be a different kind of response. Now, the point of Scripture, even the point of prophecy is not designed to help us predict the future. It's not designed to help us speculate on what is happening next. It is not designed for us to be able to point fingers at people or nations or countries. And it's not designed to satisfy your curiosity. Scripture is designed to teach us how to live now while we wait for Jesus' return. Scripture and prophecy, the whole point of it is designed to teach us how to live now while we wait for Jesus Christ's return. So regardless of the chaos of what is happening now and the utter certainty that lies in the the uncertainty that lies in the future, we are called to live today in anticipation of Jesus' return. And so we begin in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, your notes, or your phones, however you're looking at it, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, 
says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is an amazing passage that we're going to dive into today. As you read through the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is kind of referenced in three different ways or three different titles or three different roles that he plays. In the beginning, in the first three chapters, he's the Lord of the churches. He's the Lord of the churches. They were writing letters to the different churches that existed. And Jesus' role primarily is the Lord. In, uh, in up to chapter about 20, Jesus is the lion over the nations. He's the lion. And in the last couple of chapters, he's really the lamb among the believers. What's beautiful is we sang about and will continue to sing about Jesus in all three of those roles today. He is our Lord, he is the lion, and he is also the lamb. So John is describing here the new heaven and the new earth, not, as it a referen- not in reference to something that is recent or new in time, but rather new in character or fresh. This isn't just the next heaven and the next earth. This is the, the, the better heaven and the better earth replacing the old. A theologian said this about this point of history. It says this, in this chapter, we see that the history of time is finished and the history of eternity is about to begin. Now, as you read through Revelation, it can get pretty weird. That's a biblical theological word. It just gets really weird really quick. And if you're not careful, there's a lot of distracting elements. There's a lot of symbols. There's a lot of creatures. There's a lot of vivid imagery. But what John is doing is he's painting us a picture, right? Everybody get your uh, paintbrushes out. Show me what it looks like to paint a picture. Some of you have really small paintings. Some of you have big paintings. Yes, this is what John is doing. He's painting us a picture of what things will look like. Now, Christ Uh, for this group of people was their living hope. And John contextually, we're going to get into this in a little bit, but John contextually is writing to a group of people that needed a fresh awakening of who their living hope was. And to address these very terrible things that they're living through, John gives them this letter. He gives them this living hope. In Romans, we describe it this way, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. We're not designed to have vessels of hope that are just medium or three quarters full or just to the top. We are vessels that are overflowing with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So why do we have this hope? First Corinthians puts it this way. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. Another translation will say the first of a great harvest. That first fruits means that Jesus' resurrection was the first installment of the beginning of the harvest. So what's the first installment? Or if you've ever made payments to own or to attain something, the first installment means this. There's going to be plenty more payments coming, right? Right? More than we like, right? Jesus here is described when he raised from the dead. That was, that was, uh, that was seminal to our faith. He conquered sin. He conquered death. But also it's the first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. 
He is the first of a great harvest. It's the first installment of what would come. So Jesus' resurrection is the first installment of what? I believe the first installment in part of the new heaven, the new earth that we just, just heard in, first, uh, in Revelation verse 1 of chapter 21. We read on verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Let's read verse 4 together. Ready, begin. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's significant that this glorious dwelling place of God and his people is described as a city. Now, here's the thing about cities. We've never known a community unmarred by sin. So when we think of cities, when we think of dwelling places, we have this very realistic picture in our mind what it looks like because we have always been a part of a community of cities that have been marred by sin. But New Jerusalem is something totally unique. It is sinless. It is pure. It is a community of righteousness. And we can get frustrated pretty easily when we expect New Jerusalem today, right? We can get really frustrated when we think we should be experiencing New Jerusalem in downtown Roseburg. It gets really frustrating for us. Because why? Because there's, there, uh, Ecclesiastes, I believe, says uh, God has put eternity in your hearts. There's something in our minds, in our souls, in our beings that looks forward to this day where things are as we just described, where our tears are wiped away, where, uh, where the dwelling place of God is with man. So New Jerusalem is distinguished by what it doesn't have, no tears, no sorrow, no death, no pain. Later, it'll be shown in Revelation 21 that New Jerusalem has no temple sacrifice, um, no sun, no moon, no darkness, no Sith, sin, no Sith either, I guess. I don't know. No abomination. What we're seeing here is the healing of our relationship with God. We move on to verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said... Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So here's this authoritative, authoritative announcement coming from the throne of God itself. This is one of the few times in Revelation where we see God clearly speaking from his throne. And he says, I'm making all things new. This is the consummation of God's work of renewal of redemption. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first installment, the first fruits, the first of a great harvest of what he's describing now where all things are now new. And at this point in his plan of the ages, the plan is complete, all things are new. Now, again, let us remind ourselves who John is writing to for this book of Revelation. If you go back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we won't, but you can go back. You can see 
the people who are suffering terrible things. In fact, you can actually just, if you just look back to verse 4, you can see it. The reason why John was painting this picture of wiping every tear from their eye is because that was their daily occurrence, was tears. The reason why he was painting a picture where there will be, uh, and death shall be no more, is because they were living with death every single day. The reason why they were talking about no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the things that these Christians were experiencing that John was writing to was far worse than any kind of persecution you and I could ever think to imagine. Historians have recorded the works. Let me introduce you to the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian was the first emperor to execute widespread, large-scale persecutions of Christians and had their homes taken away and plundered. Under his rule, Christians were sent into the arena to be torn to pieces by wild beasts as the crowds watched and Christians were impaled on stakes. While they would still be alive, they would be covered with pitch and lit on fire and then crucified. They would do this sometimes by the hundreds or even thousands along the major highways in and out of Rome so that you could see the Christians as you came and went. This is who John is writing to. So when we think of the flowery words of, man, there's coming a day where there'll be no tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. These are the words they were holding on to with every fiber of their beginning. John gave them this revelation so that they could embrace what a new heaven and a new earth look like. And here's the thing. This, painter he, this painting he was painting, this letter that he wrote, it worked. The vision of a living hope worked. History will tell us that those early Christians took the suffering with such poise and such peace. They sang hymns as the beasts were tearing them apart. They forgave the people audibly that were killing them. They took their suffering, they took their death, they took their mourning, their crying, and their tears with such poise and peace that the more they kill them publicly in this manner, the more Christianity grew. In a couple of weeks, the first Sunday in November, um, we try to honor what's, what's called the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church, lest we think that these stories only are a matter of history, because persecution on that scale, maybe not on that scale, but definite persecution where lives are threatened and homes are being uh, stolen from people is happening today around the world, so we'll put a day where we just emphasize that and pray for the persecuted church. But what they were looking for is they needed a living hope in order to wrestle with the tension they were living through in their very day. I want to give you a principle now that I want you to really embrace and think through how it applies in your life. The way we live now is completely controlled by what we believe about our future. The way we live now 
is completely controlled by what we believe about our future. Let me give you two illustrations that might help us with this. Imagine two people that are captured and thrown in a deep, dark dungeon. And they have to suffer hard labor for 10 years. So you have two men, dark dungeon, they have to suffer hard labor for a period of 10 years. But just before they went into that deep, dark dungeon, one of them discovered that his wife and children were still alive and free and would meet him after the 10 years. The other gentleman gets news right before he's sentenced that his wife and children are dead. Are dead. And so there's no hope of reunification with his family. Can you tell me how those sentences play out? Be no surprise if the one gentleman who lost his family and lost his wife and children right before being sentenced wasted away quickly, curled up and died before a couple years had set in, and the other man endured and resisted and stayed strong and walked out a free man 10 years later. And you say, well, that's not surprising, but let's think about it. Same circumstances, same people, same situation, and they experience their reality in two completely different ways because of what they believed about their future. Here's another illustration. Imagine two, two guys are in a room. The first one's kind of hard to imagine. This one might be a little bit easier for you to wrap your minds around. Imagine two men in a room, and they have to sit at a table for 10 hours a day, and they, they, take, they take a widget, and they screw it on a wadget. That's all the technical words I have for today. For 10 hours a day, they have to take this widget and put it on a wadget and screw it, and that's it. Tedious, boring. Same room, same conditions, same temperature, 10 hours a day. But you tell the one guy at the end of the one year, they will be paid an annual salary of $20,000. And you tell the other person at the end of their year, it'll be paid an annual salary of $20 million. And you know what's going to happen in about a one month or two. Some of you are like, yeah, I widget wadgets all day. I know what this is like. The one gentleman who's getting paid the annual salary of $20,000 just goes nuts and walks out before the week's over. And the other person, I mean, he's whistling while he works. He has no problem. Why? They're experiencing the same circumstances in utterly different ways because of what they believe about their future. So church, as followers of Jesus Christ... How we behave now is a reflection of what you believe about your future. You know why I refuse to get worked up about this next election? Because I believe some things about my future. I just do. I believe that Jesus is my king, and that's where I'll pledge my allegiance. So regardless of whatever happens on this side, that is just not worth my heart rate going up. It is not worth my attention. It is not worth, I will be a good citizen. I will research. I will vote. But I will never allow 
those temporary circumstances to cause me to blow up about things where I know what, because I know the future. When the news happened about Israel, my heart sunk a little bit because for a couple of different reasons, there was a little bit of anxiety and there was a little bit of fear. I don't think I ever got angry, but I definitely got anxiety, definitely got some fear. And let me just tell you why for me. For me, I got anxiety and fear because I did not know what this meant. Right? I didn't know what this meant. I didn't, I didn't know if Israel is at war, what it means for followers of Jesus Christ in the United States. I didn't know on the world stage what that meant. I didn't know what that meant for our armed forces. I didn't know what that meant for our government. I just, I just didn't know. So there was some anxiety and some fear bathed into, my goodness, what's going to happen next, right? Um, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, our response in those moments really need to be dictated by what we believe about our future. And if we're going to live in anxiety, fear, or anger, I would call in question what you believe about your faith. If you're going to be ruined by anxiety, fear, or anger, I would like to introduce you to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who promises us that he'll be there for us to cast all of our anxiety on him, the one who repeatedly exhorts us, don't fear, fear not, I am with you always, even unto the earth of the world. And then anger, this idea where you're feeling out of control, I would like to introduce you to Jesus who is in control, who is sovereign over everything. But our responses, our behavior is really a reflection of what we believe about our future. And so we really must call into question what we believe in our future if we're going to be ruled by anxiety, fear, or anger. Do you believe that when you die, you rot and this world is all you got and that someday the sun is going to give out and human civilization is going to be gone? Because if you do, it will be no surprise that when things happen on the world stage, you will be consumed with anxiety, fear, or anger. But if you believe, Jesus will keep his word. You don't understand how, you don't understand maybe the sequence of events, but at the core of your faith, Jesus will keep his word then we get to experience two, different, two same realities as the rest of the world. We get to occupy two same spaces as the rest of the world, but we get to completely live two different ways because of what we believe about the end of the world. So you say, how do we obtain this living hope? How do we get it? How do we take it? How do we hold on to it? We're going to continue in verse 6. It says this, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to these words. See if they ring a bell from last week when Troy was here. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember Troy last week? Those of you who are here, John chapter 4, he talked about the woman by the well, and he talked about... Uh, how she's had a mess of a life, and Jesus says, man, you'll never be thirsty again. And at first she thinks he's, he's talking about physical water, but then she realizes it's about eternal life. This same imagery is being used here. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life 
without payment. Let's read on verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At this point, all things have been resolved or summed up in who Jesus is. It is done. That's why he has that declaration. It is done. And God's eternal purposes in Jesus are now complete. This is our living hope. And the imagery that God uses here in Revelation 21 is this. To the thirsty, I will give springs of life of living water. To the thirsty. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. And he says, perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive, to take in the fresh draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but he can drink. He may be unworthy in character, but he can drink, and that will remove his thirst Jesus is asking us to simply receive what's being offered to us. Those who overcome are those who enjoy this special relationship with God. And those who reject Jesus and make themselves apostate, according to Revelation 21, are prohibited from entering the new Jerusalem. They experience this second death. So how do we obtain, how do we receive this living hope? We must believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what we believe about the future will determine how we live now. And if we believe in the resurrection of the dead, if we believe that there is coming a day when there is no more night, no darkness, no tears, no death, then we will be able to battle the temptation against anxiety, fear, and anger. And rather, we'll live in this place where there's love, there's joy, there's peace. And that's what God is calling us to in the middle of this chaos and uncertainty. When I was growing up in church and in the faith, um, the most terrifying thing imaginable was that Jesus was coming back. That was the most terrifying thing imaginable. Um, I don't know if, and I'm very careful when I talk about the, you know, the place I grew up or the faith I had when I was a kid because I don't want to call into question people's motives or even the teaching or preaching because, you know, I... I was going through my own experiences when I received information, right? But what I, what I felt like I learned was that y'all better be scared because Jesus is coming back real quick to get us in trouble. And that's what I felt as a seven or eight-year-old boy, nine-year-old boy. I don't know how many times I gave my life to Jesus between the ages of seven and ten, but it was at least weekly, like every Sunday, just in case. Like, if last week didn't take, I'm going to do it again just to make sure. I was terrified of Jesus coming back. I was terrified that he would come in the twinkling of an eye, that he would come. Uh, I was terrified that the rapture would happen. I was terrified I would have dreams about, uh, you know, you wake up from, you know, from, from sleep. That's what it is, Daniel. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd wake up from sleeping in that you just walk outside and just piles of clothes everywhere. I would have those dreams and it would fill me with nightmares. 
Like the second coming of Christ was not very hopeful for me. I was filled with anxiety, filled with fear. Um, and I was terrified that Jesus could come back at any moment and I might not be ready. Uh, Darren and I were talking, we have this talk very often actually. Darren and I were talking this last week at staff meeting about there was a movie that came out in the, well, man, probably in the 70s, but I didn't see it till the 80s, called A Thief in the Night. Anybody recognize that movie name? And it was designed to help you prepare for what it might look like when Jesus comes back, because Scripture kind of uses that imagery that he could come back like a thief in the night, unexpected. You're not knowing it's going to happen. And the possibility that Jesus was coming back, I think, was used to incentivize good behaviors for followers of Jesus Christ because Jesus could come at any moment. So behave. He could come back. Let's pray. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) As you think about Israel, as you think about us, I want you to think about the very realistic possibility that Jesus Christ does not come back in your lifetime. I just want you to think about that. Because here's the thing. If he does come back in our lifetime, all our questions are answered. It's over. It's done. Right? The timeline is in place. Whether you're pre-trib or post-trib, whether you don't even know what those two things mean, doesn't matter. Does not matter. He has come back. Right? So let's just for a moment rest with the idea that Jesus Christ may not come back in your lifetime. Just think about that for a moment. He said, Daniel, don't believe we're living in the end days? Yup. So was Paul. And that was a long time ago. He said, Daniel, don't you think that prophecies like, are going to happen? They're going to get fulfilled? Yes. But I don't know what the timeline is. So just rest with the moment that Jesus Christ does not come back in your lifetime. And if he does come back, or if he doesn't come back, what if our lives just simply pass from this life into eternity? What will you leave behind? What legacy will you leave behind in terms of your faith? Will your legacy be one that was moved? Your faith was moved every time something happened on the world stage? Is your your legacy going to be marked by this anxiety, this crippling anxiety that you would have? This fear of what would happen? This anger at what politicians said, what about which country on which day? Is that the legacy we're going to leave? if Christ doesn't come back in our lifetime? Or will it be a legacy about, man, you know, you know, his faith was just really sure. He had moments of doubt, moments of tension, moments of of normal human emotion. But his faith is what held him together. I want you to look at the questions there as we think about your next steps for this message. And it's just four very simple questions. What behaviors or relationships are feeding your anxiety? 
What are the behaviors or relationships that are feeding your anxiety? What are the ones that are feeding it? And if, if there's a behavior or a relationship, I would ask you to consider what it looks like to address that. Is there a behavior in life that feeds anxiety? Is there a news channel in your life that feeds your anxiety? Is there Christmas music in your life that feeds your anxiety? I'm just kidding. Yeah, what are the behaviors or relationships that feed your anxiety? When you get around this topic, when you get around this behavior, whether it's news, whether it's um, social media, whether it's a relationship in your life, whether it's, uh, yeah, whatever it is, what, what does that behavior look like? What does that relationship look like and how do you address it? What's a relationship or behavior that feeds your fear or feeds your anger? I'm going to ask you to just do business with that. And then I would ask you to consider what are the relationships and behaviors that feed your faith? Because much of how we process scripture in relationship to what's happening across the world will be a matter of your diet. It'll be a matter of what you're feeding on. So I ask you today, what are you feeding on? What's your diet look like? If all you do is consume negative information, anxiety-ridden information, fear-based information, anger uh, uh, inciting information, there is no wonder that's where we live, right? We have to figure out what this looks like as followers of Jesus Christ to respond with our faith, not with our anxiety, our fear, or anger. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.